right. Well, I appreciate your singing this morning, and we're going to be we're going to be uh, singing some more here in a little bit. But I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them, if you would, to Psalm eighty nine. Um, so Psalm eighty nine, and we we. We've been in, we, we, we took time the last couple of weeks, not last week, of course we had the team from Camp Joy here last week, but the two weeks prior to that, uh, we were studying Psalm 89, and uh, you might have noticed as we studied through Psalm 89, and of course 52 verses, it's a lengthy psalm and there's a lot there to cover, uh, that uh, we, I felt like I was just kind of skimming over the surface of the psalm and really a lot of things that I had uh, in my notes that I would have liked to have have really kind of spent some time on. I just didn't have the time for it, and we just kind of had to go through to try to get the big picture of what the psalm is about. But you will notice, or you might have noticed, that the very last verse of the psalm, I didn't make any reference to. The very last verse, verse 52 of Psalm 89, and and the reason for that was intentional. Verse 52 of Psalm 89 says this, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh forevermore, Amen and amen. This verse uh, represents, or not represents, but this verse is what we call a doxology. A doxology is just a a term that refers to an expression or a statement of praise. Usually a fairly brief statement of praise, a doxology. Something that is a, 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 a sentence or statement to praise the Lord, something giving God praise. And that's kind of what this is. It's a doxology. And it's interesting because this, as we said before, Psalm 89 is the last psalm of book three of the Psalter. Uh, We've talked about this before, but just to go back and make sure it's clear, uh, the Psalms are, there's 150 Psalms in the Psalter or the the Psalm book. But those 150 psalms are divided up into five parts. Not five equal parts, but five parts. We call them books. And the division of the psalms into these five books is very ancient. Uh, and, uh, and we don't know a lot about how the book of psalms came together as far as how it was uh, arranged and organized. Uh, there's things that we can kind of try to guess at or try to discern as we read them. But... Uh, but, but, but some elements of organization are clear. One of them is this, that there's division uh, of books. And so we have already now, over the last two, um, what is it, 2018? We're almost to the fall. I think it was fall of 2015 when we started. So we're almost three years now that we've been working on this. Uh, uh, and, and we're through the third book of the psalm. Um, but we've gone through these. And uh, each one of the books... Uh, so far that we have discovered or that we've covered ends with a doxology, a statement like this one in Psalm 89, verse 52. Uh, in Psalm 41, which is the end of book one, ends with a doxology. And Psalm 72, which is the last psalm of book two, ends with a doxology. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of like a, uh, a way to, I don't want to say summarize, but it might be a summary or a response to the collection of that book of the Psalms. And so book one, you get through the first 41 Psalms and it's kind of like, okay, at the end of this book, here's the, 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 
the response. Here's the doxology. We end with this simple statement of praise to the Lord. And then we go through book two and we get to the end. And again, we have another statement. Book two's doxology is a little bit longer. Um, It's a couple of verses, but it's basically very similar to this. Bless the Lord. Praise and worship Yahweh forevermore. Amen and amen. And that's the the doxology. Now we come to the end of book three and we see a similar thing. This doxology. Now what makes this interesting in book three of the Psalms, if you've been following along and paying attention, is that book three, book three is kind of like the, the darkest part of the Psalms. It's only 17 Psalms. From Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. But book three really contains the darkest and most difficult portion of the Psalms. And it's interesting if we kind of assess the situation in book three. Go with me back to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 was the last Psalm at the end of book two. And I won't read all of it, but if you look at Psalm 72, it starts off with this. And it's the the heading. It's a Psalm of Solomon. Who was Solomon? Anybody know here? Any of the kids know who Solomon was? Who was Solomon? Anybody remember who was Solomon? Whose son was he? Okay, he was David's son. Solomon was... David's son who became king after David. That was really important. Why was it so important for Solomon uh, that, that Solomon became king after David? Well, it's important because Saul, remember, had been king before David. And Saul never was able to pass the kingdom on to his son. Right? Because God told Saul he couldn't do that. Because Saul was disobedient. And God said, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, Saul, and away from your sons, and I'm giving it to someone else. And then he brought David into the picture. Right? Now, for the first time in the history of Israel, their king is able to pass on the kingdom to his son. But it's not just that. Remember, God had given David promises. God had made a covenant with David. God had said to David, I'm going to do some things for you. One of those things, he said, is after you die, your son is going to take your place on the throne. So Solomon coming to the throne was a a fulfillment of one part of the covenant promise of God to David. So the fact that Solomon was coming to the throne was answer. It was proof that God was keeping his word. But remember, when God made that covenant with David, it was far more than just Solomon. Because God talked to David about this this seed that would come after him who would sit on his throne forever and establish his throne forever and would rule the whole world from David's throne forever. And we realize that God was, was promising the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is going to come as a descendant of David. So that's the big promise. But Solomon sitting on the throne is kind of like the first step, the the guarantee that God is answering and is keeping his promise. Because you can't get to the Messiah on the throne if you don't go through Solomon, David's son. It has to pass to the son. And so Solomon comes to the throne. And so that's where Psalm 72, this is a Psalm of Solomon. 
That's significant. And notice what he says. Give to the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Solomon is saying, he's he's speaking to the Lord and he's saying, give me the the judgments and the righteousness. And he talks about here, this is really in some ways a prayer that Solomon offers to God for himself as king, but Psalm 72 also looks ahead to that future king, the great king, the Messiah who's going to come and talks about him and about his, uh, b- the blessing on the earth, talks about in verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And then we come to the doxology, verse 18. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And we say, yes, what a glorious psalm. This psalm that, that, that represents the height of the kingdom. David has ruled and David has now passed on the rule to his son Solomon and Solomon has become king and all the promises of God are coming true and yes, it's glorious and there's going to come this day when this descendant of David, the son, is going to sit on the throne and all of the world is going to bless his name and everything is going to be glorious. And you could just imagine as Psalm 72 depicts this this time period when Solomon becomes king and he steps into the throne and you can just imagine how the people uh, it, thought, hey, it's coming true. God is doing what He promised and it's going to come. And so you have Psalm 72 which really represents the high point of Israel's history. Not the reign of David, but the ascension of Solomon as Solomon comes. And now it's like the first step in the fulfillment of God's promise. And the excitement and the anticipation and all of that is there. And so you can think, if, you're, if we were living there, we're thinking, wow, everything is going up from here. From Psalm 72, everything should be going up. It's getting more glorious. Well, we begin... uh, the third book of the Psalms in Psalm 73, and then we trace it all the way through to Psalm 89. And what do we find at the end of of the book three of the Psalms in Psalm 89? What we find is now we have come to the, the collapse of the monarchy. David's line of descendants through Solomon, beginning with Solomon, became corrupt, immoral, idolatrous, increasingly covetous and spiritually dull to the point where not only the the, the line of kings, but all of the children of Israel and the nation of Israel began to uh, embrace the idolatry and the immorality of the nations around them and to the point where God finally said enough and Israel is conquered, carried away into captivity. And not just that, that would be bad enough, but now even decades later after the captivity has been lifted and the Israelites are allowed to come back, guess what? They are still subject to other world powers. They still don't have their king. The monarchy is still broken off. There is no king on the throne. This is the low point. Or at least it appears to be the low point. We might argue that it gets lower before it gets higher. 
even yet. Because it gets lower when Christ himself comes and the Jews reject Christ and crucify him. But at this point, up to this point, we've gone from the high point of Israel's history when everything was looking up and it's going to be grand and glorious and here we, we are expecting book three to be it. And we come to book three and everything collapses. We get to the end of book three in Psalm 89 and we read, Blessed be Yahweh forevermore. Amen and amen. Why? Why would book three of the Psalms end with this doxology? Why would book three of the Psalms end by saying, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Doesn't doesn't really seem to fit. Now, one of the first things that comes to, came to my mind as I thought about this is Job. You're familiar with the life of Job, right? Job was a man who loved and worshipped God, and he was very prosperous. He had uh, a large family, and he had a great deal of wealth. God had been good to Job. And he was enjoying life. Job was a man who lived during the time of Abraham. So we're going back in time from the time of David and Solomon and Israel, going way back hundreds of years before that. And Job lived there and he is a a godly man. And all of a sudden one day, uh, there began to be a series of disasters. Invading, uh, invaders come and and they steal Job's flocks and his herds and they take away all of Job's wealth. And everything that he owns essentially in the world is lost because of these invaders that come in and take it all. And then even worse than that, there's a, uh, there, there's a storm and it strikes the house where Job's children are uh, and all of his children are killed. And Job is left with just him and his wife and a few friends and that's it. In the whole world. Everything that Job owns, his whole family is destroyed, everything is wiped out. And, and the reason that this incident came to my mind when I was considering Psalm 89 and the doxology was this. Job's response at the end of Job chapter 1 and verse 21, he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we see Job in a time of terrible suffering, of horrible tragedy. We see Job saying essentially what this doxology says at the end of book three of the Psalms. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship and praise Yahweh. He gave and he took away. And so my first inclination was to think, well, there, there seems to be some, some parallel here. But then as I thought about it more, I realized, you know what? There is something fundamentally different. You see, we, we kind of relate to the story of Job when we're going through some kind of hardship or tragedy or trial that is not of our doing, but something that happens to us. You know, an illness or an accident, or, we, or loss of some kind. And, 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 and we kind of, then we identify with Job, right? 
Job is this man who loves God and yet suffers inexplicably. Job doesn't know why. The book of Job lets us in a little bit. We get a little of the back behind the scenes glimpse of what was going on and why Job was suffering. But Job doesn't know that. He's suffering. He doesn't know why. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't sinned. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything to bring this on him. It just happened and he has no idea why. And so we relate to Job in that circumstance. But can I suggest to you that that's not what's... It's not what book three of the Psalms pictures for us. And that's not where Psalm 89 ends up. There's something fundamentally different. Because why did the Israelites end up where they ended up? Why did they end up in captivity? Why did the monarchy fall? Why did it appear as though God had turned his back on his promise to David? Well, it wasn't just some random or unexplained, inexplicable thing. There's a very clear reason why. Because David's descendants, and indeed all of the nation of Israel, sinned. They rebelled against God. They went their own way. They pursued after their own desires. They went to live life how they wanted to live without regard for what God said. And as a result of their sin, they were now enduring suffering. They were now enduring oppression. They were now enduring hardship and loss and tragedy. But it wasn't inexplicable. They knew why it had happened. Because they sinned. They brought this on themselves. And, and book three of the Psalms makes that clear. There are a number of places where there are clear statements referring to their sin and the fact that they need God to overlook their sin and not just overlook it in a sense of ignore it, but they need God to, to be merciful to them in spite of their sin. There is a, a full recognition that this is caused by their sin. This is the consequence of their sin. And so when we consider Book three of the Psalms, kind of in its entirety, understand there's a different kind of question we might ask about why this doxology is here. Let me put it this way. Here's how I would answer the question, or ask the question rather. How can we praise God when we are experiencing the ongoing consequences and chastening for our sin? You see, we, we tend to think like Job. We look at Job and we say it's a noble thing for Christians to praise God when suffering for their faith. Or even just when suffering for no reason, but just to, to trust God and praise God in the midst of suffering. But what if you brought that suffering on yourself? What if the suffering is because you sinned? And I don't mean like, you know... You stepped out of line and God whacked you. I mean, there's consequences to sin, right? We choose to do wrong, and that wrong that we choose brings with it consequences. Right? A man chooses to commit adultery, and what does it do to his relationship with his wife? It has consequences, and those consequences don't just go away because the man says, Oh, I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. The consequences are real. Someone chooses to lie or chooses to steal or chooses to disobey and rebel against their parents. And what happens? There's consequences for that choice. And those consequences don't go away just because we say we're sorry and ask for forgiveness. There's consequences for sin. 
You violate the law and there are consequences. And I'm a firm believer that we ought not set aside the consequences for a sinful choice, even while we should forgive those who have sinned and done wrong. Forgiveness and consequences are two separate things. So I can forgive someone while still expecting that they bear the consequences of the choices they've made. So how do we deal with this? How can we, while we're in the midst of dealing with the consequences of our own choices, of our own sin, and the fact that God has allowed us to face those consequences, and God is maybe chastening us as His children, how do we respond, and how can we, in that circumstance, praise God? Well, I think that's really more in keeping with what book three of the Psalms represents. And I think if we frame it that way, it will help us as we kind of try to ask the big picture questions about this collection of the Psalms today. So let's pray and ask God's help because I want to just go through here and I want to try and draw out just a few very simple principles. There's a lot more that I could say and I struggled with this message this week because there's so many things I could say and I wanted to try and narrow it down to things I should say. So let's pray and ask God's help as we study and consider these truths. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. We are often unfaithful. Even as your children, even as believers who have been born again by trusting in Jesus Christ, we often sin and we often uh, go our own way and try to do things ourselves, try to do things in our own strength, or just sometimes even just indulge ourselves in our flesh just because uh, the desire is there. And Lord, we, we continue to struggle with sin, the reality of that in our life. And so we fall short, even as Christians many times, of the, the, the standard of righteousness that you set up. And yet, Lord, thank you that you are faithful, that you never change. So we can look back and see how you, how you dealt with your people in the past in the midst of their sin and how we, we can expect you to deal with this the same way because you're faithful and you don't change. And so I pray that you'd help us as we look at your word and we consider uh, kind of the big truths of these psalms altogether, uh, Lord, that you would help us to see some very important principles that will enable us to praise you and worship you. Even if we're in the midst of chastening or enduring the consequences of sin and choices we've made. And I pray that you would help us understand that today and help us to respond properly to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to submit to you four principles this morning. Four principles that we, that we can apply here um, that I think will, will be borne out by the Psalms themselves of how we need to respond when we find ourselves in the circumstance of dealing with our own sinful choices and the consequences of things that we have done. Again, sin brings consequences. And even as God's children, if indeed you are a child of God today, those consequences don't disappear. Sometimes they're lifelong consequences. How do we live in that? How do we still praise God 
in those times and when we are experiencing that. The first principle I would say is this. You need to remember that you belong to the Lord. Remember that you belong to the Lord. Children, pay attention because I'm giving you the first blank in your outline there. Remember that you belong to the Lord. Go back with me to Psalm 74. These psalms present a picture of the relationship between God and His people and specifically identify, or identify them in specific ways. Psalm 74, verses 1 and 2. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. The Psalm 74 jumps right in. All right, Psalm 73 kind of sets out a principle of God's relationship with people and, our, and his expectation of obedience. And we jump right into Psalm 74 and we're talking about the conquest of, of Jerusalem. We're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So right away, it just goes to the bang. Here's what happened. This is the worst of the worst. He had Solomon on the throne and the next thing we know, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is leveled, and the Babylonian army is invaded and it's, it's a mess. But notice the way the psalmist speaks about the relationship of God to his people. They are the sheep of his pasture in verse 1. They belong to him. They're sheep that belong to him. They don't have any sort of independence or self-determination. They're, they're livestock that belong to God. He's the shepherd, they're his sheep. He continues, they are the congregation that he purchased. Again, he is their owner, they belong to him. They are the tribe of his inheritance. Again, this speaks of the ownership. They belong to God and this is how the the psalmist cries out, Lord, Remember who we are. We are yours. We belong to you. In Psalm 77, verse 15, (coughs) he says, You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Down in verse 20, he says, You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Here they are, Yahweh's people whom he has redeemed and led like a flock. Again, this is, this is the, the, the idea of ownership. They belong to him. He redeemed them. He purchased them. He went down to Egypt and he got them and brought them out for himself. Psalm 79, verse 13. They are Yahweh's people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 81 and verse 10, they are Yahweh's people whom he rescued and brought up from Egypt. Psalm 83 and verse 3, they are his people. He calls them his sheltered ones, his protected ones. They are under the protecting hand of God. So they are recognizing here this relationship with the Lord. This is foundational. This is fundamental to understanding. They belong 
to the Lord. And because they belong to the Lord, even when they are suffering the chastening and the consequences of sin, their cry to God is, God, we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Remember that. See, this is their identity. And identity is a big deal today. You know, there's all sorts of, 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 of you know, back and forth in our society today about identity. And how a person wants to identify themselves. And interesting, I mean, unfortunately enough, our society, most of the time, it seems like we're pushing this idea that our identity is wrapped up in our sexuality. So we define our identity by our sexuality. But that's not how the Bible defines identity. Here we have the identity of these people is they are gods. They belong to him. They are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's their primary identity. Especially when they are in the midst of chastening and suffering the consequences of their sin. Their appeal to God is, God, remember who we are. We are your sheep. We belong to you. This is our identity. And so if you belong to God, if you are one of his sheep, how do you become a a sheep of God? How do you become a part of his flock? Well, you have to be redeemed. The Israelites were redeemed in Egypt. God went to Egypt and he called them out of Egypt. And as a nation, collectively, they were redeemed. Well, the scripture says that we too must be redeemed. Not as a nation, but as individuals. We must be redeemed from the bondage of sin. Because the fact of the matter is, that's our natural state. We belong to sin. We belong to Satan. He is our father. He is the one who, uh, who, who begets us in our natural state. We're born as sinners. And we must be redeemed. And how is it that we are redeemed from that sinful state? Well, the New Testament tells us that we are redeemed not by silver or gold. That's how you normally redeem someone. You go and buy them and you set them free. Peter says we're not redeemed by silver and gold. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross and shed His blood that He might redeem you. Purchase your freedom from sin that you might be one of His. And we receive or we, we become, First John, or I'm sorry, John 1 rather, Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us that we become a, a son of God, a child of God. By believing on Jesus Christ who died for us. By trusting in Him. By casting ourselves at His mercy. And when we commit ourselves to trust Him, when we cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness, He he gives us the authority to become children of God. To become the sheep, the flock, those who belong to Him. That's the relationship. That's the fundamental relationship. So do you belong to the Lord? 
Have you trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and to make you a child of God? If you haven't, then I hope today you will cry out to him and ask him, beg him to take you as his child, to receive you on the basis of the promise of his word. But if you know the Lord, then if you have been saved, if you have become one of his, then remember that you belong to the Lord. Even in the midst of suffering, even when God is chastening, even when you are experiencing the consequences of sin in your life and you've blown it and you've done wrong and it's brought, uh, it's brought pain and suffering and hardship and difficulty, guess what? You still belong to God. Remember that. That's the basis on which you can cry out to Him. And you can say, Lord, I'm one of yours. I know I'm going through a hard time and I know I brought this on myself, but Lord, I'm one of yours. Now secondly... You need to remember that the Lord will judge. The Lord will judge. Remember that the Lord will judge. This is a prominent theme throughout these, uh, th- these psalms. And I'm not going to read a lot of them. There's just so many different references here. I'll share them with you as we go through. But uh, all the way back in Psalm 73, though, the very first psalm of, the, uh, of this book, Psalm 73, verse 18, the psalmist says this, Surely you set them, he's talking about the wicked, the ungodly, the unbelieving. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. The Lord despises the wicked and those who mock God. He is the one who sits in judgment of them. Even though they mock Him and they despise Him, He sits in judgment. There's more explicit statements of this. Psalm 75, verse 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. The Lord is the judge. He's the one who is exalted high above and He's the one who sits and looks down and determines the right and the wrong. He's the one who executes judgment. The very next psalm, Psalm 76, speaks about when the Lord comes in judgment. Verse 7, You yourself are to be feared and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Listen, God is the one who judges and when he judges, it is a fearful thing. And so we need to understand that God is the judge. He's the one who sits enthroned above the earth and he's the one who decides and determines right from wrong. Now again, if you belong to the Lord, then you should already know this. That God is the one who judges. He's the one who determines these things. You should understand that the Lord judges His own people when they fail to trust Him and obey. This is something that God does. Psalm 78, the the second longest psalm in all of the, the, the book. Psalm 78, verses 31 to 34 speaks of this. It says, The wrath of God came against them. And it's talking about the Israelites. In the wilderness, after God had redeemed them from Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and He's providing for them. And it says, they, The wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. 
In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. When he slew them, then they sought him and returned and sought earnestly for God. The Lord, he punishes, he chastens, he disciplines, he judges his people for their sins. That's the picture that we see here. God does not ignore sin when his people sin. We could look at Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, where it speaks of the Lord allowing Israel to wander astray and suffer the consequences of their rebellion. In that case, it's not an active God judging, it's God simply allowing them to face the consequences of their sinful choices. Or Psalm 82, uh, where the Lord is the judge of the leaders of his people. And then Psalm 88, that very dark psalm where it speaks of the Lord bringing terror and death on men as a result of their sin. And it's speaking universally, the experience of mankind. Why do we have death? Why do we lose people? Because of sin. Because God has brought terror and judgment on mankind for our sin. The truth of the matter is, God is the judge. And so, we remember that. We need to remember that. We need to realize that this is not something that just happens. God is the one who executes judgment and justice. On one hand, that's a a troubling thought because it means that when we do wrong, we can expect that God is not going to just sit by and allow that to happen or take place and nothing's going to be done. That when we do wrong, God is going to act to deal with that wrong. At the same time, it's encouraging because it means that though we sometimes see people who appear to get get away with things that they're doing that are wrong, we know that the fact of the matter is no one gets away with anything. Okay. That God's judgment will be executed on all men. If not in this life, in the next. And so we, we need to remember that the Lord will judge. That's an important truth for us to keep in mind. Thirdly, though, we need to remember something else. We need to remember that the Lord will keep His word. We need to remember that the Lord will keep His word. Again, the, the, um, the idea of the covenant is very important here in these psalms. We could look at Psalm 74, verse 20, where it speaks about the, the covenant and it appeals to the covenant that God has made which will cause him to protect his children from the wicked ones. Or Psalm 77, verses 8 through 11, which speak about remembering the past actions of God that demonstrate that he is faithful to keep his covenant. It's interesting in Psalm 78 and verse 10, we have a statement about the people of Israel Concerning the covenant that God made, it says they did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. So the people didn't keep the covenant. What did God do when the people didn't keep the covenant? Well, the rest of Psalm 78 
proves in no uncertain terms that God kept the covenant, that God was faithful to do what he said he was going to do in spite of their sin. In fact, Psalm 78 makes it clear that the judgment that came on them was because of the covenant of God. It was because of the promises that God made. It was because God was faithful to his word. Because he had said to them, this is the covenant. Here's what's going to happen. You do right, I'm going to bless you. You do wrong, I'm going to, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to punish you. And so the punishment that he brought was him being faithful to keep his word. And of course, Psalm 89, where we were uh, most recently, I love the way Psalm 89 puts it. Verse 33, Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him. Speaking of uh, the, this, this descendant of David, the seed that was going to come. Nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne is the sun before me. You see, Yahweh's covenant will not be broken. His word will not fail. His word will not be changed. He will keep his word. How was that comforting? Well, for the Israelites, for the Israelites it was comforting even though they were suffering the consequences of their sinful choices. They knew that God was not going to turn his back on his promises. Even though by all appearances, it seemed as though God was having none of the promises of David. God was not fulfilling them. All of the glories of Solomon and the hopefulness of Solomon coming to the throne have been set aside and it appeared from a human perspective that God was done with that, that he was not going to do it. And yet, in, even in Psalm 89, there is the reassurance that God's word, when it has gone out of his mouth, it does not change. God does not go back on his word, that he will keep his promise. And so there's the assurance that even while they are experiencing at the moment the suffering and the consequences of sin and the chastening of God, even in that moment, there is still the confidence and the assurance that God is at work and his word will not fail. Paul speaks of something similar to this. When he says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him until the last day. Paul says, we have confidence that God is going to keep us until the last day. That we have committed our trust in him and that trust in the Lord will not fail. God will keep it. God will keep us. He will hold us. He will maintain us. He will fulfill and do what he has promised until it is done. And so even when we are experiencing in the present time the consequences of sin, chastening of God, we can be confident, we can know that God is keeping His Word and He will keep His Word. And that allows us to do now the final thing. 
when we remember that we belong to the Lord, and we remember that the Lord will judge, and we remember that the Lord will keep his word, and finally, we can resolve to worship the Lord. We can resolve to worship the Lord. We can choose to worship God. But this isn't ignoring our circumstances. This isn't pretending that we're not in the middle of suffering and this is not pretending that, that somehow that stuff that's happened is, isn't anything to worry about or somehow uh, it's not our fault or whatever. This is not excusing any of that stuff. What we're saying is that even in the midst of this, even when we recognize that we have been disobedient and we have brought these uh, consequences of sin on ourselves and we are suffering our choices and we're dealing with the consequences, even in that, we can choose, we can resolve to worship the Lord. That's what the psalmist does here. Psalm 89. There, remember we said this last time. Psalm 89, the psalmist writing to the Lord, he says this in, in, uh, in, in verse 47. Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? What the psalmist was saying was, God... You've made these promises. And it appears right now as if you're not keeping the promises. But remember, God, my life is not very long. And I want to see you do what you're going to do. I want to see it. Lord, do a work in my lifetime. He's pleading with God to recognize that his life is short. And again, as we mentioned last time, we realize, looking, at, looking back at this, that the psalmist never saw it. That he lived and died without seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God. And yet, what's the response? What's the response? Even as he awaits, even as he says, I know, here's where I'm at. Lord, I want to see your work. I want to see you do great things. What's his response? Verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. That word blessed means to worship. To kneel down. This is a call for us to worship the Lord. To humble ourselves before God. Not to make demands, but simply to come to Him and honor and exalt Him. And how long are we going to do that? Forevermore. Interesting thing is, it's, the word, it's a word the psalmist has used throughout Psalm 89 numerous times. Speaking of the, pro- the promises and the covenant that God had made. Guess how long we are to sing and worship and praise and honor the Lord? Well, for the same duration as all the promises that He has made. See? So while we await the fulfillment of His Word, we praise and honor Him because even when His Word is fulfilled, we will still continue to praise and honor the Lord. This is something that will be ongoing. And He closes with those two words, Amen and Amen. An expression of agreement. This is for the people. So the psalmist says, Worship 
Yahweh forever. And the people respond, Amen. We agree. We agree. Even though we don't see it, even though from a human perspective it seems impossible. But God has promised. God is faithful. He will judge. And we belong to Him. Will you resolve today to worship the Lord? By the way, this points us to book four. We're going to start that next week, Lord willing. Book four is going to be focused completely on God, worshiping and praising and exalting God. He's the answer. Take your eyes off of yourself. Take your eyes off of human uh, rulers and kings. Take your eyes off of, of the world around you and your circumstances and look to Him. But that's for next week. Will you today resolve to worship Him in light of the truth of who you are in Christ and who He is? Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You give us the truth of Your Word and not just on a on a psalm-by-psalm or passage-by-passage basis, but even when we step back to look at bigger uh, sections and look at some of the themes that we see, we realize, Lord, that You are trying to communicate to us who You are, Your greatness and Your sovereignty and Your majesty and Your glory, Your mercy and Your love and Your righteousness. These are all themes we didn't get a touch on today that are found all through this book. They're, They're all through these psalms. There's so much for us to learn about you, even in the midst of, of, of pain and suffering. And even when we have brought these things in ourselves, even when we're, we're experiencing the consequences of sin, there is much to meditate on you. So many times we just focus on ourselves. We tend to have that woe is me attitude, even when we're the ones who brought the trouble on ourselves by our own foolish choices and our sinful, and our sinful decisions. And yet, Lord, I pray that today you'd help us to meditate on you. To remember that we belong to you and that you, that you are the one who judges and you are faithful to keep your word. Help us to worship you and praise you today, regardless of what our circumstances are. And we'll give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.